yeah, so that's just it. I, I, I don't, I don't feel healthy in, in the day to day. Yeah, it's not you. It's the, it's the what society demands of you, and then we blame ourselves. It's a big problem. We think we, I should be able to do it, and no one can do it. <laughs> and what you were saying the other night, um, I think it was at night you gave the Dhamma talk about, about idealism. Yeah, it really spoke to me about um, anger versus hatred, mm-hmm. and, and I never even thought of those thoughts like I shouldn't be angry, or I shouldn't, you know. Like if I have an uh, an argument with someone, the way that I feel about it goes on much longer than the argument, mm-hmm. and like you know, tend to beat myself up mm-hmm. or think, oh, I'll never change, or oh, you know, and it and it's it was just in, insight. It was insightful for me to hear that the way you described it, those thoughts are like hatred, and that's what we want to free be free from. Like yeah. anger is a normal part of human existence. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's just not a problem. Hatred's a problem. Mm-hmm. So hatred and anger, ooh, you get those two together and they're horrible, but frightening, vicious, uh, but you're not cruel. You're not vindictive. You know, you don't plot the end of your enemy, right? So if you think it rationally, you know, I'm a good person. <laughs> but yeah. you've got a nervous system. And that nervous system gets overstimulated by culture, society, demands, economics. So, yeah, that's why we create this kind of places as a sort of refuge and place to be nothing. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty. As a layperson, you come here, you're just nothing, in a good way. <laughs> in a way, oh, just wash dishes, cook a bit, and look at the birds. Mm-hmm. And then psh, it all winds in so quickly, right? Mm-hmm. So quickly. It doesn't take long. It doesn't take long. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so be, you know, be a, kind of identify the problem as a social problem. I mean, we're always working on ourselves, right? It's, it's, a, it's a, yeah, it's a social problem, an urban problem, a, a livelihood problem. I would say, yeah. Lay people really search for right livelihood, balance. How can I use these gifts that I have and serve and help people and yet not become consumed by it all? Yeah. Yeah. Because you want to do, right? You don't, I mean, no one wants to be a monk. (laughs) (laughs) Just joking. (laughs) But, you know, we don't live in a cave. We live in relationship. We learn a lot from each other and that. Today, uh, Ajahn, I was reading little excerpts from different books, and one even said, I think it was Breath by Breath by Larry... Rosenberg? Yeah. And he said, even for monks in the monastery in this day and age, it's harder to reach that peacefulness that they maybe they were able to reach in past times. Because even... even even here on the in the monastery, there's how did he describe it? There's still there's like complexity. This, yeah. Like modern life. He was talking modern just life, about the yeah. trials. Well, of modern you life. know, I lived in monasteries where, like, I lived almost a year in one monastery, which was the back of beyond, 
There were five monks. We had the alms round and the meal, and that was it. In terms of stimulants, we had one small bag of sugar for eight of us, one in the whole year. Mm. <coughs> My gosh. That's, that was it. So no kind of, um, no one spoke English. The food was very, very basic because they were poor people, good people, very kind. <coughs> so there was no, no stimulation at all. No intellectual stimulation, no, no uh, art, no, no coffee, yeah. no books, nothing. And that was, I, I don't know how, I mean, I, I learned a lot, I guess, but I, I uh, because I'm an urban person, I do find modern life, the stimulus of modern life, it has huge advantages to mm. just being in the backwoods, being on my own, in that kind of culture, which is very uh, rural, very agricultural, very simple. But I don't have a simple mind, I have a complex mind. So for me to return to some agrarian simplicity just doesn't work. I prefer stimulation, I prefer talking about ideas, and that stimulates my reflective mind. So I think it's dangerous to say there was a golden age, hmm. because certainly the monks who I lived with, uh, who were from an agrarian background, their minds were much more simple, but they didn't get enlightened any easier than we did. Hmm. <laughs> they, had their, they had their neuroses, we had our neuroses. So certainly, like Ajahn Chah said, you guys just think too much, hmm. right? But it's not that the Thai monks are so, somehow more adept at meditation. I, I never saw a difference. We're just humans mm. with different conditioning. And I never, I never thought that we were better or, or, or lesser than. They had their strengths, like physical strength. God, these scary farming guys, gee, they were strong. Yeah. They could endure pain, mm. which would, you know, and, and so yeah, they had their strengths. But they didn't have this, oftentimes, the strength of a reflective mind. So they tended to believe very easily, uh, and things like that. Mm. So there's sort of advantages and disadvantages. But certainly the, uh, the internet uh, has this way of just drawing everyone's attention outwards into whatever it is. It's not immoral, but that, I think that draw outwards into objective reality is, is, the great, is the cause of not realizing spiritual silence. It's just that pull outward, and and the uh, amount of interesting things that go on in our culture, as well as horrible things, uh, pulls the mind out all the time. So you know, as as a monk, I I enjoy the stimulation, but I'd be careful not to be constantly stimulated. Mm -hmm. right? I enjoy the exchange of ideas, but I realize that that just the very movement of of seeking myself in an objective experience, in in ideas in emotions, and sights, and sounds, that that is the very problem. And renunciation is the capacity to witness change rather than to be seeking something in the changing world which satisfies. Mm. And that basic thing is, is uh, hard to understand in a materialistic culture. It's hard to understand in a spiritual culture, let alone a materialistic culture. That, that your real home is awareness, and this movement, don't look for yourself in that. Hence, Ajahn Charles kind of fierce talk about happiness and unhappiness. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> giving it to you. 
But it's not, it's not a rejection of happiness, it's more that you find your home in that which is unmoving by knowing movement coming and going. And that's what we mean by renunciation. It's not about this. Renunciation is seeing that sense experience is very limited. Let you come here and the distractions that you're involved in uh, fall away because you don't need to attend to them, so your mind doesn't have to go out, mm-hmm. and it calms down. Mm-hmm. Not through any technique, not through any kind of, you know, we're going to do 12 hours of samatha practice and we're not going to move. No, just through the natural disengagement with the distractions, and then you have like a sense of beauty, a sense of presence, a sense of silence, and that comes about naturally through um, non-grasping, through not attaching. Of course, if you came here, then you'd, you'd get attached to something. Yeah. <laughs> you'd rev up with your own habits in certain ways, right? Because <laughs> that's what we do. So any, any life is, is a challenge. Well, there's still the mind. There's, there's still the mind, mind and the habits of mind, and the prejudices of mind, the biases of mind, and the beliefs of mind, and all that, yeah. And that's why the teaching emphasizes the suffering and discontent. Because if you look at that, you'll see what the problem is. Rather than seeking uh, a distra- uh, compensation or something like that. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah. yeah. yeah it's a brilliant teaching because it really uh, asks us to look at the very problem. Why am I suffering? Rather than, uh, and and to, to be mature enough to raise that into consciousness and, and witness it, and not through a judgment, witness and see, well, what's really the problem? Until you have your own insight. No, oh, I see. That's what's going on. Yeah. So, like, when I was in that monastery in Thailand, I, you know, I wanted just anything, <laughs> anything to excite the mind, but there was nothing, just nothing. So, you know, you're homesick and lonely and bored and it was very hot. Mm. And you say, what's the suffering? What's the, what's the cause? Well, because there's no one here, that's the cause! <laughs> I said, no, no, it's because you want stimulation and you want something else. And as long as I stayed with the wanting, and the wanting kept ceasing, then I found, oh, that's the peace. That's the peace. That's the stillness of life. Like you would find respite from the want, want. Yeah. it would come and go. And, and I would believe it less and less. I, I, I'd say, well, no, it's good enough. You've got food. Yeah, yeah, but, 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 yeah, mm. it's good enough. It's good enough, that kind of thing. So it was an interesting year. Yeah, and that was way, way I was like, 1975. A few years ago, I barely can remember it. <laughs> Any questions around? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'd like to know your thoughts on mercy. Define or the, or define the mercy. On mercy. Can you define it for me? I can't. Um, I, I know me and Noah Levine have talked about mercy in it, and he has um, a pretty clear definition. Of mercy and it never sticks with me um, and I think mercy is you know that we want mercy from God or, or we want um, 
I guess it's similar to grace, but I think mercy has its own attributes. I don't use that word, so I'd have to find something. Okay. Um, it's hard to define the word when I don't use You know, our vocabulary is, with some words we use a lot, and some words, and so I don't, I don't really employ that word as a, as a, as a part of my practice. Okay. So to me, I don't, I really, any sense of what mercy might be? Like, is mercy more of a Catholic word? Um, perhaps sort of that's Christian. kind of where... It's sort of like Christian. Do you mean like forgive? That's what comes to my mind, forgiveness. And, and mercy is almost like when you, um, I guess, suffer with your own um, actions and behaviors, that um, mercy is almost extended to you by, by someone, by... And you're saying it's related to grace. Well, I think it's like grace. Like, like yeah. grace is almost like space to, to breathe with it, right? And, and so how, how would I extend mercy to someone that's harmed me? And, and I guess it's also coupled with forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You know, forgiveness is my God <laughs> that I can't seem to grasp because uh, I feel like I can forgive as much as I'm able, but I never quite forget. So then do I even really forgive because I always see them through the lens of my own pain or my own experience? So forgiveness, I could think about, but I, you know, it made it grace and mercy aren't, aren't words I use. And okay, I, so forgiveness. Yeah. I would, I would love to know how, because if I'm still holding the thought and there's still that charge between me and that person, then I'm really not forgiving. I may be. Just, Why do you think that? Um. Why is that true? I think it's true because I. Um, hold my experience now with them um, through the lens of the pain that I felt previous. So I'm do you, not... Do you have a choice? Do you, you're saying yes. you hold it. In what, in what sense? I mean, it's there. So how would you define holding it? Well, I think, I guess for me, I think forgiveness is maybe letting it go and then there isn't that thing between me and that person. But go back to that thing. Okay. Why is that wrong? Because uh, it was hurtful, or it was... No, no, his was hurtful, but this very feeling you're having now with this person, mm-hmm. why is that feeling wrong? That's a good question. Um, it, well, it isn't, because it, it's happening. Right. So what, think... what makes you say that you're holding it? What, what is it about the experience? Because maybe I don't So you like it not to be there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so then I go, well, then maybe I need to change jobs. Maybe I need to um, look at the relationship differently. So I'm the queen of compartmentalizing things. <laughs> so I'll be like, okay, well, you and I can stay friends because I'll just um, look at this part of our relationship. Maybe I'm a judger. Maybe I am putting judgment on that person. And even Well, let's go back to the person comes into the orbit of your consciousness, either mm-hmm. through thought or sight, and what arises is a memory, mm-hmm. okay, and that you can't do anything about. You can't get rid of that memory, right? So first of all, if you think you shouldn't have that feeling, I would say that's not natural. I mean, it's natural to have the feeling, It would be unnatural not to have that feeling. Alright? 
So it's natural to have the feeling, what would be the way to allow the feeling to exist in nature and let it run its course. Have you ever done that? In situ. Well, I think I am doing the best I can with it. Um, but but it, it, I'm not judging it. Like, what's wrong with it staying there for five hours? Um, it's difficult and, it, and it's painful. And so I, I feel like I'm working, um, I'm being, um, having loving kindness towards everyone, right? Causing no harm. Um, but do you have loving kindness to the memory? Or do you want to get rid of it? Um, would you oh, like I to, want to get rid of it. Yeah. Like, I, would, I would sign up for amnesia on half of my life. <laughs> okay. If there was a choice to be like, take this and you will never have to think that again, I would gladly take it. My, my life would be much more peaceful if yeah. I forgot whole right. schwack of things. But it's not happening. Unless you get Alzheimer's, which I don't recommend. <laughs> and I have a very powerful mind, so I'm like, I better be careful what I think, or I will end up with. <laughs> so, so, okay, something arises as natural. If you, if you use the structures that we use around suffering, we're trying to pay attention to the desire around the experience rather than the experience, rather than the experience itself. So the experience of having been betrayed and hurt mm -hmm. is naturally a very horrible feeling of having been betrayed and hurt. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it is terribly unpleasant. And our desire mind would like to change history or change the present. Is that... Yeah, sure. that's how it works? Okay. And I know that I can't change the past, but what I'd like to do is change... Um, like, I, I try and see it from a different angle. But like have you just let it be? Yeah. And, and how do you... Okay, if we go to that... How, okay, so, so I think it festers if I just let it be, then it's just going to get more painful or difficult. And I, is I that wanna... true? Have you ever have you ever looked at it before thinking about it? Like I can I can uh, I can feel this, and then I can say it's hard and cold. Yeah. But before I, I describe it as hard and cold, it is like that. And that's neither hard nor cold, it is like that. Can you apply that, and this is very hard, mm -hmm. to a complex emotion like betrayal and hurt and history? Can you apply that pre-thinking, pre was that precognition or pre-whatever? Like, like beginner's mind. Whatever you call it, okay. but what, whatever I'm doing here, and then it's cold and, and, and hard after. So that experience is what we call now, mm -hmm. suchness. Can you do that with the emotion? And you find it's hard to do because your desire is to get rid of it. Or um, protect myself to not get hurt, right? So mm -hmm. it's like I put the armor on, so it's like, I know this, right? But You're so I, protecting I, yourself from the emotion to the other person or your own emotion? Well, both, both. because the discomfort is overwhelming and so it's like oh here it comes again and, and not that that person's even displaying it it's all in my crazy mind well it's in your conditioned mind it's in my conditioned mind for sure yeah, it's it's okay you do you ever <laughs> do you ever have this experience away from the person oh yeah like and there's there's few people and so i've labeled them yeah right um and so you know i'm very good at um 
keeping people that are loved and kind and, and we have similarities and, mm -hmm. and I'm safe with. I have thousands of them, but it seems to be the, the four I don't like consume more of my mind mm -hmm. than the 80 that I do like. Okay, so <laughs> what, what? Am I alone in this? Do you no, I'm not alone. Do you all experience? Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's, let's, go, let's go to the cushion then. Okay. Let's say you're not in the room with this person and then that experience arises. Yeah. Now, you know you're safe. Mm -hmm. can, you, <laughs> can you do that then? Can you, can you make a suggestion to yourself, I'm just going to try to witness this without touching it? I welcome it, uh, let it have its life, let it become conscious without touching it with thought. Can you do that? Or I have can, you tried but, that? And then I find myself storytelling, right? And yeah. then, and then yeah, I. Yeah, that's, that's not the extent. This juice is very cold. Why is it so cold? It okay. shouldn't be cold. And this cup is plastic. Why? You know, as opposed to. Can you. So may I suggest a way to work through this Absolutely. is one, learn to do that in the unthreatening. So learn to do that with sound or physical contact. So just feel your, your legs on a cushion and just get the sense of whatever it is, pressure, heat, it's like that. So you're, you bring your mind to silence, silent attention, but not in any kind of weird meditative way. <laughs> just as the natural awareness before thought. Okay. Right? Do that around the neutral. Look at a tree before you say the leaves are gone or the wind is blowing or before any comment. Taste uh, a grape. Just taste a grape. Don't try to be super mindful of grape tasting. <laughs> That's boring. <laughs> but uh, uh, a taste before you go to thought. So do that around the neutral. <clears throat> and then try to do that around the marginally uh, exciting or uh, annoying, say. So let's say you, you just feel annoyance because someone is, uh, uh, you know, they took all the salad <laughs> and you were the last in line or something, right? <laughs> and then, <laughs> and just, just notice like annoyance before you, you think a storyline. So try to get the mind pre-storyline. Okay as a training, and it's a very good training anyway, right? Mm -hmm. Then, the more you do that, then that way of witnessing life will have a chance to click in when the more extreme kinds of things, such as forgiveness and that, come up into mind. And then hopefully, if you keep doing it, you'll remind yourself, say, now just what is it really like to feel uh, betrayed? Or, or what is that really, really like? And no thought. And if you keep going to that, you keep going to that, the, the feeling is very uncomfortable. Very, very uncomfortable, very unpleasant, counterintuitive. You feel like you have to do something about this, analyze it, think about it, blame or whatever, and you just get, but what's it really like? What is, what is this really like? And, and their desire is being challenged. And now you're not fulfilling desire's demands. And that's what's a discomfort about it. It's not just the the, the history of this thing, but it's also, I don't want this. Mm. I, ugh, this is yuck. And you have to bear with the yuck. And, and you'll be, you know, if you, if you bear with this, you might not notice yourself, but you, afterwards, like the day, next day, you feel really light. 
because you've let go of desire. Yeah? So it's, that's what we're pointing to, the history of these things is yeah, pleasant and unpleasant, memories like that. But it's the desire patterns that coagulate around that which are very hard to allow to come up into consciousness. Very, 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 un, you know, they just don't feel right. You have to do something. Well, and we've never been taught. Like our yeah. parents never taught mm-hmm. me. I had no mentors that really taught me to sit with painful emotions. Like they didn't that. know. Mm-hmm. No. No one knew that. No one knew that. I mean, no, that's what took it's a Buddha. Not to distract. <laughs> yeah. Compensate. Like even talking about going into betrayal and getting to know that emotion, it makes me sweat. Like my yeah. heart beats. It's like. Like I'm not going there. Uncharted yeah. territory. Yeah. And yet, through, and it's, so it's like Ajahn Sumedho's great phrase that liberation is an emotional enema. Awesome. <laughs> Sorry. <Wow. laughs> you know, think you'll just meditate, bypass all that stuff, and boing! You'll get your halo and you'll never. Ah! <laughs> wish. So, in other words, what is that? Could you. Well, like, let's say betrayal is coming up. It's becoming conscious now. Now, the desire mind feels that so, it's so awful that the desire mind seeks some kind of compensation and usually goes to storyline, distraction, or yogurt, whatever, whatever you choose. And then it hasn't had a chance to become conscious and be liberated, and it goes back. And then it comes up again, and another compensation is taken. And it goes back. It's it goes never back into staying into, in it. Yeah, kind of just staying in the cycle of, 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 our, of our distractions. And then when the conditions are right, it comes up again. And we, we have good intention, but we don't let go of the desire for it not to be there. And that desire recycles it again and again. So that's what this idea of renunciation is about, is that you even give up comfort. Hmm. You know, not that you have to sleep on a bed of nails, but emotional comfort. You see, well, even emotional comfort is not liberation. It's the knowing. So when you come to something very uncomfortable, like more than uncomfortable, painful, um, it's so hard just to, to trust that awareness will take care of it. And the mind clicks in, the analysis clicks in, the distractions click in, the compensations are blame, and it just goes... You know, it's the same cycle over and over again. And then we blame ourselves, you know, I, I must be a really pathetic person, and I'm just holding on, and, go, and then you go to God. <laughs> <laughs> Help! <laughs> Mercy! Yes. <laughs> right, right? And that might work if you have that kind of mindset, I don't know, but in Buddhism we do it this way. One of the ways you do it. And, and I think that's really helpful, because I think that what I love about Buddhism is it's... Um, a set of tools, a set of skills that can help get me out of this exactly. samsara and this difficulty. Yeah. And it's a, you know, it's a profound difficulty. It's not something to be trivialized, say, well, I'm just a terrible person. No, yeah. it's... And, and this work that you do is, is like, if, if, if 80% of your time is taken up with this mindset, then that's 80% liberation. Uh, right. But if it's not... If you don't do it, then it's 80% of your time is going to be taken up with it. Mm-hmm. So you pick it up now and say, well, this is, this is the path of liberation. It's the awareness of this feeling and the abandonment of craving. And you know what's interesting is um, working with my mind, 
I see that there's always that protagonist, I think it's protagonist, throughout my life, that there is always one person that my mind will go to to be like, bad them, mm -hmm. bully, yep. this, that, and so if it isn't this person, it's this person, mm -hmm. it's this person, so I am the common denominator in all of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I was reading something the other day that, you know, not all people aren't bad or good, they're just working through their own suffering and, and with their own causes and conditions that brought them to where they are. So, in fact, the only sane, um, the only sane decision or, or thought is compassion, right? And so if, if I can have compassion or some space understanding their own difficulties, then maybe I can just work with my own. Well, you've got to be careful there, because that becomes the ideal. Mm. And then you use compassion for them to repress your own sorrow. Okay. You know what I mean? I know. No you doubt. try to fix it with, I love you, I love you, I hope you drop down. No, I mean, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually like the last 10 years of my life have been like that. That doesn't Like work. I say thank you when I really mean something else. Like I will say thank you to people when I really mean thank <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. And my kids are like, Mom, I know what that means. I'm like, no, this I really mean thank you. <laughs> so, it doesn't work. It doesn't. It's that, that's that, that kind of idealized sense of me being a person who is good. But, um, hey, Kimia, come on in. Did you just arrive? I did. You got some tea? Yes. All right, come on in. We're talking Dhamma. This is Kimia. Hi, Kimia. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so... Um, that you know, if you study Buddhism, you want to you want to really um, get the four noble truths very deeply into the background of your intelligence, so that it is the the way you solve problems, right? And and so you 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 your kind of conditioned sense of this um, construct that you're dealing with has this maybe psychological, idealistic idea of how to deal with it, and you just fall into that. But what you want to do in this is just, first and foremost, what's it really like to feel this? Mm. And, and obviously you have to do it in the safety of the zafu, or a soft chair where you're not threatened by anything. And then it'll come up, say, okay, what's this really like? And that's, that's, that's awakening. And that's right understanding. Because now you're understanding it's like this, right? It's not understanding on a psychological, analytical, idealized level, but it's understanding in a visceral level, ex ex existential level, I suppose, yeah? Um, okay, what's it really like to feel this? And now, now you, get, now, now you can practice Four Noble Truths and say, well, what's the, what do I want and what do I not want? Where is the desire? And then you wait. And you say, well, I don't want to stay with this. And now you see where the third noble truth comes, I just have to stay with this. Rather than replace it, organize it, analyze it, blah, 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 blah. And getting to that place of, of seeing that the problem is not the emotion, but the desire, takes quite a lot of work. It's just to kind of let it come out, let it come out. But once you see that, you see, oh, okay, the way to deal with aversion or fear of these things is compassion. So you do come back to compassion, but it's the compassion to be with the way things are. 
So it's not no longer an idealistic, dualistic compassion, me and Charlie, but rather it's the compassion which accepts all things in stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that's where, where compassion goes beyond dualism. As long as you're using compassion and dualism, that's fine. But you'll notice that there is no real Charlie. There are perceptions and feelings and sights and sounds, and there is a flow, and in that flow you get stuck. And in that stuckness, there is an inability to say, oh, this, this, is, this belongs to. And, and getting to that point is what really compassion is about, as opposed to a way to suppress things. So then is nirvana <laughs> the allowance of both the painful and, and, and the joy together? That's the, that's the path. That's the path to it, because you, you struggle with, first of all, the craving to not have the painful. And, and Nibbana is defined as the end of all that craving, right? So certainly when you, when you get that insight, okay, now you're on the path, because it's the path of non-grasping, mm-hmm. the path of renunciation, but not the path of rejection. And, and in fact, you're not rejecting anything, you're allowing it all to be there, but you're living morally. So as they come through, what you strengthen is witnessing, or awareness itself. And as awareness is strengthened, you see, well, actually, awareness is very peaceful. And the tendency to be drawn to the beautiful and the ugly is still there, but it's not so compelling anymore. And that takes you more and more to peace. And you see the desires more and more, and they fall away. And so niroda, third noble truth, cessation of craving, is synonymous with nibbana. Cessation of craving. Not the cessation of experience or consciousness, no, it's just that, that need to always uh, have some kind of experience or not have some kind of experience. And when you're touching these deeper um, conditions, you're, re- you're, you're really doing the work of liberation, mm. but you have to be willing to burn with it, to bear witness to it, to have patience with it, you know, to endure. That's the language that they use a lot in, in Northeast Thailand. They don't say fix it, they say endure it. Mm-hmm. But endure it with wisdom. Now, I just I say, well, well, a water buffalo can endure things, but you know, you have to endure it with wisdom. So the first thing is right understanding. And right understanding is life is like this. <laughs> but it's, it's a profound, it's not a, just a tautology, like, well, how else could life be, right? But it's that awakened mind which sees life before you think about it. So you get back to simple, like, life is like this. And then you say, oh yeah, there's, there's a silence which knows. So one of the things you might do is, is like play around between sense experiences. So listen to sound, mm-hmm. and then take something tactile and feel that. And then listen to sound. Feel tactile, change, and what isn't changing? And that's the knowing. So by playing around, like like just if you're like if you're if there's a lot of traffic near your home or something like that, and you're hearing cars come and go, just listen. And and listen to change, and then say what's unchanging. And that's the knowing. It's not changing. Change sense objects. And you get, you're getting a sense of what awareness is as a, as a way of accepting all things. Whereas our usual 
worldly way is always to be caught up with the emotions and ideas and thoughts and analysis and, and, and we need to do that to a certain extent but we don't what we fail to do oftentimes is find refuge so if I were to use grace or mercy I would say refuge and I would say that awareness of change is refuge because you can rely on that right? and it'll, it'll heal it'll allow things to come and go uh, but that's not that's not external uh, it's it's something that's just not noticed. It's available if you make your, if you allow yourself to be available. So you can be available to awareness within a horrible emotion. Mm. When you when you say, oh yeah, this feels like this, then you play around. You can say, so how does this emotion? Like maybe that emotion is there, and say, yeah, there's that emotion, and then there's this this hardness. You play around with it. So you're not no longer just trying to sort it out, you just, you just look, okay, it feels this way, where is it in the body, you know, those kind of, body awareness is very good, but not to get rid of it, like we recommend obviously body awareness, and everyone does that, but sometimes it almost is a way of, well if I, if I look at my body it'll go away, but a mood is more than just body awareness, it's like a whole color a whole texture, a whole, you know, it's very large. Mm -hmm. And you're just trying to get awareness, to, to see that awareness is the space within which these textures arise and cease. So another way to play around with it is to say that this experience is in awareness. So, uh, I see you over there, and you see me over here. So that's individuality. Mm -hmm. But individuality takes place in awareness. This whole room, yeah, I could perceive it as in awareness. I could perceive me as here, you as there, true. And if my knee hurts, your knee won't hurt. And I'm drinking this juice and you're drinking the jack. So there's individuality. But also, and this is a perception we don't play around with, that this whole experience of space and individuality and, and sound and distance and, is in awareness. And it's arising and ceasing in awareness. And that's the way the Buddha described the world. The world arises and ceases in this fathom long body. And if you do those two things, if you do change, like hear sound, uh, feel texture, smell, smell, whatever you want, take a couple of senses, toggle between them deliberately, and what's, oh, that's different, that's different. What's not different? Awareness, knowing. You can't find the knowing because this doesn't have a quality. But you can be the knowing. And that strengthens as the more we do it. The more you do it, yeah. So you do these very simple exercises, or do the one of, this is in, so let's say if you're a meditator, and you're trying to focus on the breath, and someone's having a party outside next door and playing Grateful Dead or something like that, and you're trying to meditate, and you're thinking, they're out there, and I'm here trying to meditate, but actually, all of that is in awareness. Your irritation, your annoyance, and the sound is in awareness. And then you say, oh, yeah, this is in awareness, and you're peaceful again. But if you want one object called the breath, and you don't want the loud music, then you're choosing something, and you get frustrated. So we would allow it and work with that. And you say, yeah, what's the, but this is in awareness. So Ajahn Chah would say, don't go out there and bother the music. <laughs> so then you, you do these exercises of creating awareness as spacious consciousness within which things come and go, come and go. Yeah? You get good at that. So that when this other stuff comes up, you have the Four Noble Truths, 
of desire. And uh, right understanding is this moment is like this, stopping listening. And then you, 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 then you're in the position to have a right understanding in terms of cause and effect, craving the abandonment craving. But if you never get to the position of it's like this, you just jump into your assumptions that I have to fix it and get rid of it and reorganize it and, and it, it can't work because you haven't understood it yet. You haven't stood under it, that kind of thing. It's really good. So you said that um, <clears throat> renunciation is not rejection. No. Can you um, expand Renunciation on that? is that to realize that the, in, in sense experience, you can have pleasure and pain. You will have pleasure and pain. But that what the Buddha realized, Nibbana, wasn't a function of pleasure and pain. It was transcendent of pleasure and pain. It was obviously a deep peace, but it wasn't something uh, that was dependent on sense experience. Because he saw that, and including the mind, and emotions and memory and perception, he saw that that it's unreliable. Sense experience is unreliable. It's contingent. Mm -hmm. You don't know. You can you can line up all your ducks the best you want, but one of them is going to drown or be eaten by a pike or something. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not going to work. So he said, without rejecting that and saying it's all bad, just realize that pleasure is contingent as is displeasure. So what could freedom be? Well, freedom couldn't be pleasure or displeasure. It has to be something. If there is freedom, if there is freedom, and he said there is. And the way he described that, he said there's the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unformed, Nibbana, the island, the harbor, the refuge, peace. Hmm. He used a whole series of words, and, and the words that Ajahn Sumedho has really encouraged us to think about are the unconditioned, right? the unborn, not the, not the immortal, but the unborn. Uh, the unchanging. And these are weird words because we don't use them. In India they do. In isn't India. everything changing? Isn't everything... Now that's a good question. Right? Like, isn't everything... Is that true? <sighs> All sense experience is changing. It's a very good question. Someone asked that on the retreat. I did a trick question. <laughs> I said to them, uh, Buddhism 101, everything is changing. True or not true? And we said, true, everything's changing. I said, no, you flunk. <laughs> Go home. <laughs> is the knowing changing? Well, I think all relationships change, feelings change, yeah. experience change. But yeah. like this carpet, is this carpet that this carpet will fade, this yeah. carpet will wear. Yeah. Um, and is there anything unchanging? Awareness. Yeah. Is that well, is, does awareness change? I think we can be unaware sometimes, we can be... In your unawareness, are you ever absent? No. Isn't, isn't presence always there? I mean, for me it is. Well, I think for me, I have a few lampshades. <laughs> no, but even in the midst of your lampshades, <laughs> isn't there still a sense of being, presence, knowing? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that's what we're curious about. Sure, your emotions change. Sure, the body's going to die. And, and to rely on the body to live forever is silly. And so da, 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 da. But when you begin to witness change, 
and emphasize the witnessing and awareness rather than the objects which are changing, you begin to sense this underlying peace which is always there. When you emphasize the changing objects through the pleasure and displeasure, then, yeah, you're caught up in change and you nigger it, right? And you try to sort it all out and you can't control it. And it's like, but when you witness change, and that's what I suggest, with, with, like with sound, like here, it's very quiet, but if you have, like, like if you do this, like if you have the, this sound, this is my party trick, I do this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but if you, Kim has endured this many times. And if you just, <laughs> if you just listen, notice change, what's unchanging? Now, squeeze your hands. Listen to sound. Isn't there something that's unchanging? Not something. Isn't, isn't awareness unchanging? I, I don't want to persuade you, but I do want to persuade you. <laughs> I think what she's saying is like, if I understand, like, for us who aren't monks, like, we're not always in awareness. Like, we're... Yeah. Well, then, so what changed is you turn the fan on. I squeeze my hand. So for me, I look at it like um, that's what changed. Yeah, and so what doesn't change is me as the observer. Well, okay. Is there a me and uh, and uh, observing? You tell me. No, no. You, you <laughs> look. Is that is there an extra bit? Okay, let's listen to sound. <laughs> Party trick. Okay, you listen to this, and just listen. Is there a me listening, or is there listening? I would say there's a me listening. You would? To be silent, and... and I can only see listening. And what would, so could describe the me? Well, my... Ears and my eardrums and yeah, there's the eardrums, yeah, but the mind, like the well, act of listening, she's listening, he's listening, like everyone's having an individual experience of the listening part. So we that's all... yeah, but you're saying there's someone having these individual experiences. So can you that little extra bit called I'm, I'm there is listening, yeah, but can you give me where that extra bit called the me is? The Intention, the decision to listen. And there's a me doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you? Can you? Okay. Can you? Like, like, like where is it right now? In my brain. <laughs> so you're feeling your brain doing a me. Yeah. And how does that feel? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So really abstract, really fast. <laughs> so. You think there isn't a me. I think there is awareness. And awareness is the seven of us in this room together. No. Okay. I have no, no more logic than that there is awareness. There, to me, there is this experience. It's changing and there's the knowing. Whether it's everyone's awareness or individual, you know, that is to me just kind of extra thinking. No, I like it. I like where you're going. I think it's... So, 
and, and like, like when you say, you know, the me is in my brain, I mean, that's what we've learned, mm-hmm. right? Or this is me. Or, or something like that. But when you, when you, and this you have to do in meditation, you have to just stop, like listen, uh, don't do the party trick on you, just listen, and then take the assumption of me listening. And you know there's listening, you know there's consciousness. Okay, find the me. I get just to me there's silence. There's listening, there's consciousness. But the extra bit me comes with thought. Yeah. I am this body, I am a man, I am a woman, I have appointments. And that's necessary in conventional reality. So your passport is different than my passport, your calendar is different than my calendar. So we have conventional reality within which we function. And this is the paradox of a Buddhist practice. It gives you one one practice to be an individual in the world where you use the word self. Mm-hmm. You know, I have, you know, I am Virdamo, you know, I have a passport, you know, I have duties, and my body's old. So I use I, 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 my, my, my. We use that. But then also we try to look at this other way of saying, well, in, in this experience of sense experience right now, what, what's really happening before I think about it? And then silence, knowing, change. That's why we're pointing to those things. And then the sense of self arises through thought. I don't understand what the heck he's talking about. I don't believe him. And where does awareness live? Does awareness live in our um, heart-mind? We don't know. Uh, I don't know. It is. Uh, uh, don't know. So the question, of course, is when the gray matter disintegrates, what will happen with awareness? Mm-hmm. Conventional science says that's it. It's a black hole, right? Uh, I don't know. What do you think happens? No idea, but I do have into you know I I, I strongly sense that awareness is is really the unconditioned, but it is covered over through uh, self identities, through craving, through the the need for sense experience distractions and that. The depth of what that means becomes more and more apparent through renunciation. Mm-hmm. And then renunciation is another rejection. It's saying, yeah, there is, there is ice cream and there is um, things too salty. Say, you know? <laughs> there are sweet tastes and salty tastes. There is that, sure. But is there an other? Is there a dimension which I'm missing now? And the Buddha would say, yeah. See, there's the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, use that language. So then the, the spiritual kind of quest becomes, okay, what's unchanging? And you have to stop and wait and be silent and witness. What's un, unconditioned? What does that mean? And you can't figure it out because thought is conditioned and thought is, is changing. And then you begin to see that the whole sense of a person is just thinking. You know, and, and, and um, it's powerful, you know, I'm a great person, I'm a horrible person, it's very believable, but as soon as you stop thinking that, what's it really like now? Where would that person go? And, but it comes up so strong, it's so believable. You're not repressing thought, you're just kind of shifting to another sense experience, because now you're, you're not trying to get anything. You know, when, when, you're, when you're just trying to get some emotional state, by getting rid of another one, you're not really aware. 
But when you experiment like this, okay, your mind is rabbiting on, oh, I, sh- I, should, I should have more forgiveness, da-da-da-da. What's it like before I say that? Or you say it for half a sentence, oh, you're a horrible person, and then stop. And you kind of see, well, awareness knows that thought. And you get more and more trust and, and faith and refuge in, in awareness. So that, that's what I would say the Buddhist uh, faith is, in awareness of change, that you can trust. But you can't trust sense experience. Like Ajahn Sumedho says, he just doesn't believe his mind anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just, whatever he talks about, he believes in silence more. <laughs> I like what Anne Lamont says about the mind. Um, the mind is like a bad neighborhood. I tend not to go in there alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, some really good analogies about that. Very good. Does that make sense? Oh, it's yeah? brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Really helpful. So you, you can... Uh, and so when you can be with like these difficulties in full awareness, you, not, you, no long, you, you not only process these things and they're liberated from consciousness, you strengthen awareness. Mm-hmm. You realize that is a refuge. And that's the beauty of it. You get kind of double bonus. Because that stuff gets liberated. You say, yeah. This, you can trust this. And do you think it's harder to do as a layperson in the real world with our distractions and our media and our work life and our family life? Awareness is not hard to do, but it's to not be distracted is hard to do. It's right? practice. Yeah, and, and um, priorities and, and I think times of disengaging are, are terribly difficult but terribly important. Dis- I don't even like thinking you have to meditate. Because that can become another thing. Oh, God, I have to do my meditation half an hour at a time. I didn't meditate today. <laughs> but but yeah. just getting in a chair and listening, say, going to the garden or just looking at a winter snowscape, but maybe, you're, you know, maybe your household doesn't allow that and kids are all over you and you've got emails. So let's say you have monasteries or you know, different places, but places where you can just be. Mm. I mean, we all know that, don't we? I mean, it's kind of common in our culture, but it's profound. Because then you touch awareness. And when you touch awareness, oh, that's my real home, you remember. And that remembering then informs the busyness of your life. That's why sitting meditation, we say, is so helpful. Because you're coming out of the dream state. You can kind of be aware if you had grumpy dreams or whatever. Not too much has been created. And you have a chance to really uh, make awareness strong. And then that helps inform your, your ordinary life. So it's not so complicated, but um, life is complicated and, and distracting and, and demanding. The list of things you have to do, and you know, it's, it just mind just starts to race. So. I'm grateful to be here. It's really helped unwind. Yeah. It really has. That's great. That's why we sort of build these places. <laughs> yeah, they're refuge, and you don't. Culture doesn't have that. Even the churches are locked. You can't even go to a church. It's locked. You know? well, come on. There's going to be some place you can stop. Some of the, some of the airports have a... Uh, where the religious people can hang out, what do you call that? It's a chapel. Chapel. A little bit. Like, that's what I do in airports. Sometimes you just go to the chapel when it's in there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's your own lounge. <laughs> Sometimes the Muslims are there praying now. Yeah. So they do, but you just go in a corner. And... Yeah.
Thank you. Homework, huh? Yeah, lots to think about, lots of food for thought. But if you read Ajahn Sumedha, he's very good on this. He's very direct. And you get a different view of right understanding. Okay. It's not, it's not intellectual position. It's a constant realization that it's like this. And then there's silence. So I've been practicing with um, fair attention, mm -hmm. trying to see something as it is, not how I think it is. So yes. when I'm experiencing something, I'm like, is it like that? Like really kind of challenging my mind to maybe um, see it as it is, not through my many lampshades. Yeah. And, right? and I would suggest make it receptive rather than even try to get to the point of, an, you know, just let it come to you and, and let it be what it is and that rather than even conceptualize that am I really looking at it because that's still thought. Yeah. So what that requires is waiting rather than doing. Waiting. Difficult. Waiting, yeah. Where you just listen and then and there's a kind of waiting period and then you, there's a consciousness of the way things are. And then that's, that's, that's you don't have to do anything more. Whereas you can make a conflict by thinking, well, I really have to see what this thing really is. And then you have some idea of what it really is. And then you're like, thought again. It's a doing. What did you say uh, just now about um, Ajahn Sumedho? Another way he says right understanding is, he says it. Well, well, right understanding is, is not necessarily just an intellectual viewpoint, but it's more like an, uh, uh, an existential realization, a realization that this moment is like this. Mm -hmm. Again and again. Again and again. So you, re you, you realize right understanding rather than get it in mm -hmm. a bunch of thinking. The bunch of thinking is helpful, for noble truths and that too. But to understand this moment, you have to stop and let it be what it is. And then you understand, oh, this moment's like this. So his phrases now, I often repeat this, two phrases he uses, it's like this and it all belongs. Mm. That's 50 years of practice. And it is so profound. <laughs> it's so wow. profound. See, I do the right now, it's like this, but I don't do the it belongs. Yes. That's, so that's what I've missed. Mm. Thank you for that. Which isn't condoning. No. It's just, yeah, it's, if it's here, it's not. Well, and I can, and I guess I think, okay, I can look at how it's served, right? Like, yeah. I can look at the benefit that that painful experience carved my heart even deeper than it was, or, or right. how that experience served um, my kid and, and losing his earbuds, how it taught him responsibility. Like, pain is a great teacher. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's really yeah. difficult. So you can, you can use your logical mind to bring it in line with Dharma rather than just in line with some desire patterns which society might But form. then I think we, again, could idealize it. You cannot, yeah, right? that's the trouble, yeah. Like don't ideal, oh, it's actually okay because like, no, it caused pain. And, yeah. And, and just I'm, so, I'm so happy for your pain. Yeah, like what <laughs> you're saying, thank you. Yeah, but thank you. Don't you. Mean it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so the more you can just make conscious, the more you can encourage people to be aware, rather than making a judgment about what they're aware of, the more you're in line with liberation. Mm. And then get them into morality and generosity 
that also gives a, a, a beautiful tone to life. Generosity and morality. So there is that part, and you're not dismissing this part without res- social responsibility, and that would not work. You know, it's like this, and I punch you in the face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it belongs. <laughs> right, right, right. So that's... So always these teachings are in a context of, of really good living, good moral living, and generous, and, you know... So the heart has this kind of uh, positive development all the time, mm-hmm. within which you can deal with the negative. If you didn't have that, sources of joy and beauty and, and generosity, it'd be very hard to do. Very hard to do. So those are very important. Yeah. But usually I find people come here, they have those in place. They, they aren't usually mean-spirited, you know, they have generosity, they fairly have moral integrity. It's just, uh, so they're actually ready for this kind of teaching around the unconditioned. And, and people will, you know, people will say, you know, I'll say, are you religious? No, 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 I'm not religious. But I am spiritual. So I say, okay, what do you mean? And they don't know. Well, you know. No, I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean by spiritual? Well, well, it's, you know. And, and they don't really know, but they have some sense of otherness, right? And maybe they just rejected Christianity, but they don't really know. So they reject religion, fair enough. So like a lot of Buddhism, well, no, Buddhism isn't a religion. Any anthropologist will say, this is religion. Come on. You get a bunch of priests and, <laughs> and rituals and bowing and all that. But religion isn't bad if it's in, 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 in infused with true spirituality. And this is the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn. So in Buddhism only remains at a level of mindfulness and psychology, you kind of miss why the Buddha taught the things he taught, because he realized something very, very profound. And so if we remain at the level of just self-improvement and fixing, we won't understand what renunciation is about. We have to fix stuff, like if a, if a person is you know, traumatized by childhood, we have to somehow try to get them into awareness, right? So that's good. But you can miss that, why, why the Buddha taught. Where was he coming from? What did he realize? So I've never actually heard um, the unchanging, the unborn. You never heard that? No. And, that, and that's so central. To, to, you know, he would say that. He said if there was not the unconditioned, there would be no uh, freedom from the condition of the born, and so on. There'd be no way out. You'd only have change. And you'd get it as right as you could, and then you'd die. <laughs> but he said, no, there is. There is a transcendent possibility. And then if you understand that, then you understand the teaching much more profoundly. Then you understand why craving is not, the attachment to craving is not encouraged, because it always takes you to the condition. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that as a background, the unconditioned, the uncreated, then you can take it from a a kind of uh, Abrahamic sense that desire is wrong, and it's evil. And it's bad to have fun, and you shouldn't enjoy yourself. Mm. And so you overlay this Buddhist, um, the, the, the methodology from the Buddha, with a methodology or a, or a philosophy which comes from feelings of innate guilt or, or, or original sin, and then for it's bad to enjoy sex, or it's bad to enjoy ice cream, and you know, you kind of, 
you kind of get it all mixed up. But the Buddha, the reason he's pointing to craving is because you're looking in the wrong place. That's all. The craving, we always have desire, but if you're looking for the unconditioned in the conditioned, how could you do it? It's not going to work. And that's what craving is doing. It's looking for comfortable conditions. So you give that, it's its realm. So if you, if you have painful knees, you move. Right? If you like sugar in your coffee, you put sugar in your coffee. No big deal, right? But you realize that sugar coffee or unsugar coffee is not, is not Nibbana. You get it in, in right proportion. And then, okay, that's the sense realm, that's it. But what is this other? What is this thing that the Buddha is asking us to realize? Then craving and the abandonment of craving makes a lot of sense without rejecting. Yeah? So you can really m misunderstand if you don't get that basic, basic uh, idea that the Buddha is presenting. So he taught because of enlightenment, not because he had deep psychological problems, right? He wasn't teaching from that, but he was a good psychologist, I think. So is there a book out there that I could um, read on the unchanging, the unborn, or is it really... How difficult a book would you like? Like, are, are you a... Kindergarten. A, <laughs> <laughs> okay, that if you want a PhD book, or not PhD book, you could read The Island. Okay. So Amaro and Ajahn Pasano, it's online, uh, did a large book on all those ideas. That, and, he, and they incorporated ideas from Dzogchen, from Zen, from Advaita Vedanta, and from the Pali Canon, from Ajahn Chah. It's a, it's a difficult read. Okay. But that's the most uh, thorough description of this language of transcendence that you have and the different approaches that are coming. Otherwise, I would say Ajahn Sumedho's work is, is uh, he, he, he always riffs on that, because that, that's his love. Like he named um, he, the monastery in England, Amaravati, the deathless realm. Mm. <laughs> Amarasiri, the radiance of the deathless. And, and like, Amaris, like Amara is used commonly in India, but we don't have, we don't even have that kind of language. Because ours come, our religious language comes from the Abrahamic tradition, so it's kind of idealistic and, and God, and, and so you've had mystic philosophers trying to get beyond that duality and so on, but mostly it seems very idealistic, paternalistic even, I suppose. Um, Ajahn, you also touch on it in your book. In, yeah? Uh, is uh, the crap. Uh, the contemplative crap. Yeah. Yeah. I just read one chapter last night, uh, uh -huh. The Art of Awareness. Uh -huh. And I think you mentioned the unconditioned. Yeah, I, I, I love those references. It's in there. Okay. And you know, they're, they're not just uh, belief systems. They're, they're contemplative um, challenges, I'd say, which contemplate your whole search, your, your spiritual aspiration. You have the Buddha, Buddhist statement, and then you have your own aspirate. Well, wait a minute. And am I in line with what he's saying? And it's a possibility. So if you're looking for hat, and that's what Ajahn Chah, that's what Ajahn Chah is talking about in that talk this morning. <laughs> it sounded very heavy, but that's what he's pointing to. And so he says, people don't understand that. It seems very curious. But it's not a rejection. You know, it's not. It's just putting things in the proper perspective. 
Well, even thinking it belongs, it can be challenging, right? Because wow, very, yeah. Like, so you saying that and giving that to us, I've been holding it through different situations, and I'm like, and that belongs, and that belongs, because there's so much pain and suffering. And cruelty. And cruelty. And corruption. And yeah. Right? So some people don't like that. I know a friend in Ottawa, he doesn't like that statement at all, because it, to, to him it sounds more too much like condoning. But it's not used in a social sense, it's used more in stream-of-consciousness sense. And that's where, if you conflate those two, mm-hmm. like here, uh, if, if someone came in, you know, was staying with us and smelled of alcohol, I'd throw them out. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, throwing <clears throat> out belongs. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say to them, you know, I mean, you know the rule. We had a chap like that. He had an alcohol problem. I said, no, you can't do that here. And, and he said, yeah, but it all belongs. <laughs> no, we have moral discipline. We have limits. And we're not a hospital. Mm-hmm. And we're not a, 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 a place that can deal with the drug addiction and so on. We're just not equipped for that. We, we offer something and so on. So there are boundaries. And, so I don't say it all belongs with someone who's living, uh, doing things immorally, and so on. If they didn't understand, and I had to explain it, okay, that'd be fine. So if you conflate those two, it all belongs in, in a moral sense, and in, in a responsible sense, you get very confused. But if you see, there is this two levels of teaching. One is at the level of social convention, and one is at the level of freedom. And the freedom comes by using the social convention as a grounding for understanding this deeper thing. If you didn't have a social convention, you just have confusion, mm-hmm. you know, social confusion and so on. But it's, it's not an end in itself. So that's why morality is not an end in itself. It's a means. So we don't, we practice morality to create a foundation for having a peaceful mind for realizing this, rather than morality being somehow, you can be very moral, but really self-righteous. Mm-hmm. Right? Be total creep. <laughs> it all belongs. <laughs> you know, it all belongs. So that's, that language needs to be used in that context. And if you get those two, like anatta is used in the context of stream of consciousness rather than social responsibility. Mm-hmm. If, a, if, a, um, if someone, say, is, is training with us as a, as a novice or a monk and they sleep in every day, and, and they say to me, it's not self. <laughs> I said, sure it's not self. Out you go. <laughs> yeah. You have responsibility. You, you know, you, 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 you. And, and then you have, you lay down the social foundation, which we all agree upon. And then you can do this kind of interesting uh, contemplation and reflection. That's the genius of the Buddha. He saw both. Both are necessary. So, and when we see acts that harm social responsibility, it is our, in our morals and our ethics to say something. To call it, that's wrong. It, it, like me as the senior monk here, if someone's doing something wrong, I have to say, no, that's wrong, you can't do that. That's my responsibility. Be responsible not to say that. And then within that, I can say, yeah, and this feeling of annoyance belongs. It's like this, but I have to practice right speech. I have to try to be, you know, responsible. And then the feeling of, oh, what is this guy? Get out of here. Oh, and that's, that's the feeling of annoyance. So I'm doing both all the time. And, and, and then as I do this inner stuff, then awareness more and more is the refuge. And the emotions come and go, but they no longer dominate. 
call a shop, create a self. So it's it's uh, yeah. So you need you need both both of those those teachings. Yeah. So we have a very very uh, detailed rule that we live by, and it's you know we, we study it. I'm supposed to be there soon. <laughs> but they said after 45 years I can have a break. <laughs> but you know, it, it's it, when you hear about it as a lay person, you think, God, they're fussy those monks. What's so fussy about? But it creates mindfulness. It mm. creates cohesion. It creates a common thread of life, and it works. And then, but within that, it's not self. So you use both. Yeah. That confuses people a lot about Buddhism, uh, the Anatta teaching. It really does, because they think, well, there's no one here. What do you mean? <laughs> and they kick you. And they say, so is that not so? So is that more the teaching of the um, impersonal, the not yes. self? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Anatta. I like that because then when something happens, I'm like, well, it's not personal. It's just life being life, and yeah. then it's easier to figure out because the emotional charge isn't there. So if you can do that with the feelings of uh, unforgiveness or whatever, it's not a person. Okay. And it'll be hard. I'm going to practice. Yeah, that. but that'll be that will free you. You know, it, tremendously, because that's where the stronger sense of personhood, um, gra- that's where the grasping takes place. So you hear the, the personhood language, storyline, you say, yeah, but what's it really like? And then the person who dies away. You're not getting rid of it, you say, yeah, but what's it really like? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, but. So you're awakening, awakening, coming to right understanding. Works. Okay. But just don't expect it to work. Like that. <laughs> you gotta really persevere, keep at it. I think with experiences like that, when we've been wronged, we want to hold on to those feelings because it's like a defense to remind us. Oh, to be careful so in the future. Get, yeah. But, it's, um, yeah, okay. I think maybe that's. Well, and I think that's human nature, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right? And so yeah. it's like. I'm going to just keep you at bay, or I know what you really like. Mm. But then that allows, or disallows. You've got to be street wise. Street smart? Yeah. Oh, I'm street smart. Okay, so what's the difference between street, street smart and fear? Because quite often the way people manipulate us is because we're fearful. When we're really present and we fear less, you, you kind of, unless you want something from people, usually you're, you're in a good position to say, no, that's mm-hmm. wrong, right? I think that I'm, I'm still learning boundaries as well. Like, okay. like when I see something wrong in my world, I have a hard time because I am in a male-dominated um, workspace right. to be like, you know, I think they think I'm Joan of Arc already, that I'm always like, wait a second, Miss Morality, that it's like, here she goes again. So I, so I don't speak it because I'm like, they'll learn, right? Like I'll just then detach, but that's not... Hard one. If you're not given authority to say things, it's hard to say things. Very hard in social situation. Mm-hmm. You, need, you need authority to be able to, uh, to actually say things which are meaningful. If they don't give you authority, I guess you just have to construct your own inner authority. Say, no, you can't do that to me. But a larger question, it's very hard. Mm-hmm. It's very, very hard. And it's a dance, right? So it's like, how do... Because I'm pretty good at weaving in um, 
my ideas because I speak it in their values. Okay. So that which is kind of a form of manipulation, but it's how um, the safest way to speak sometimes is, is saying it in a way that they can receive it. Yeah, that's the only way. You have to use their jargon. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's 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 creative. It's clever. Yeah. Like if I if I'm speaking to someone who is not a Buddhist but I feel they might have some sensitivities and I really try to get their what are their models of life like and I say, okay, that's the way they think and then I can speak from their perspective that's, yeah, that's good communication, isn't it? Yeah. but if you, if, you, if you make this inner work primary then that's your best chance of giving good responses okay? mm. your best chance I mean, see but, you know, you're going to flub it it's alright <laughs> yeah say the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong person. <laughs> it's going to happen, and that's all right. But just see that compassion is it all belongs, mm. rather than uh, only my good qualities, or, or the good qualities belong, and the others should be negated. That's not compassion. Yeah. It's a much broader view of compassion. Much, much broader. There was a guy who came to Amaravati and he was an evangelical Christian, a beautiful man, beautiful, loving man. But he had a concrete idea of the devil following him, right? And uh, he was very afraid of the devil. I couldn't, I couldn't relate to the concreteness of it. But I said, well, have you ever... You know, if you, you know when, when you see the devil, have you ever just invited him in for a cup of tea? <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, just analysis and see what he's like. <laughs> and I'm like, what? I never thought of that. So that night, he went back and was staying at Amaravati for a few days. Interesting man, because he was from a whole different you know, spiritual perspective, but a very, very good-hearted man. So he's in his room, and the devil comes to see him with his little red eyes. <laughs> and sure enough, he says, come on in, have a cup of tea. And he said that there was such a beautiful union, and they were both crying together. And he put his arms around him. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't know what it was. But he was just blissed out the next day. He's just blissful. So well, he let go of his fear, right? Yeah, but I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't coach it that way. I said, okay, if this is a person, fine, and it worked. It worked. It It was really one of those lovely moments, right? (laughs) But he was he was a deeply compassionate person. That was the bit of compassion that he needed to extend. I thought so. That was fun. Any other? Mark, you got anything? Or? Just thinking about the problems of language. Ah. Of the language? Of language. And, yeah. The limitations. And, um, well, I guess is the knowing is kind of pre verbal, right? I mean, awareness. Yes. Yeah. We're putting whatever tools of the language we have around. To define that, things. Yeah. Uh, it always makes me wonder, uh, not figuring out what's out there, but just accepting that I don't really know. Yeah. You know, 
and to trust that in the not knowing you can there is a response from some innate wisdom that you will respond if there's danger you will right if there's beauty you will so I think I'm kind of trusting because I do think that language is necessary to construct reality but it's always always invested with a me and that reality out there and when you stop using language not permanently you don't become kind of vacant see it as a convention yeah see it as a convention use it as a convention but then do the other what's it like before I, I construct it and then you keep touching silence you don't have to meditate <laughs> the thing I was going to ask you about was just the use of our language in our practice because I play with language from time to time and I have these conversations with friends and I might have stolen this from Sumedho, I hope not, but uh, I don't believe in time. Yeah. Right? I don't, I don't think there's such thing as time. I think what we're experiencing is change. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And when you think about reality in terms of change, not in time, it's a really different thing. Yes, yeah. Right? We're in the flow. And hence, you can't believe in death. Yeah. yeah. I don't believe in death either. Yeah. Because I don't believe in time. But so the when we just tweak words, when when I worked around men's violence, for example, one of the things that men who were married couldn't say was my wife. We, we changed. We got them to change their language. And, and, we and why? We'd also get young men not to refer to grown women as girls. Yeah. Okay. We would ask them to refer to women as women. As women, right? Because Cognitively, it felt differently to say woman yeah. versus girl, or yeah. partner versus wife, right? And so, so she, wife is a pejorative word. Well, it's oh, possessive my, too. My, my wife, right? I see, I see. Yeah, you know, in language, in terms of, I'm trying to stop saying my. Mm-hmm. Because I don't have anything. Yeah. I don't even have this, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, language is powerful that way. You know, um, so how can we, as a part of practice, kind of alter our language? And cognitive therapy talks about self-talk, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but even how I label things, like for the longest time, and someone gave me a really great gift in my 40s, an African-American woman who was in her 60s, and I was complaining about something over and she goes, Mark, you sure are a victim. <laughs> and it was like she punched me in the stomach. And I was like, <laughs> like I keep playing this narrative, yeah. right? And not that I hadn't had uh, terrible things happen throughout my life, but that step of what, how do I know that wasn't supposed to happen, but also what am I going to do with it? Mm-hmm. Is it going to define me or mm-hmm. am I going to um, use it? And, it? and not only that, but the obvious it got me here. Mm-hmm. And so how I conceptualize that and talk about that and think about that is, is really important, you know. We often have just a, a perception which is sitting in back of consciousness defining everything. It might be dread. Yeah. It might be like um, uh, uh, failure. It's just something just like this color yeah. that is defining everything all the time. We don't see it. It's like fish in water. 
<clears throat> when it seems like I have some kind of idea of how it should have been. <laughs> you know, I, I think most of my suffering is that I just reject reality, right? I, I have this constant story I impose on how it should be, how the world should be, how our society should yeah. be, how others should be, versus... And I, I appreciate it. You added something to Ajahn Sumedho's, it's like this, in your book you said, it's like this right now. Uh-huh. For me, those uh, last two words are more important because when it, we say it's like this, it feels very permanent versus... Oh, I see. This is yes, like, yes, yes, yes. It's just momentarily like exactly. this, you know, it's going to shift probably, yeah. right, in mm-hmm. addition to it all belonging. So, hmm. um, yeah, that's the fatalist thing if you're not careful. It's yeah. like this. It's and like I'm, this. I'm a fatalist. So, yeah. You know, I can, oh, I see. I can crunk, I can make it permanent very quickly. I see, so, I see, I see. That's like good to remember. Right yeah. now. Right. And that's so freeing to me, like, because I can endure, you know, and be with something if I know it's not forever. Yeah. And then you, you're taken to the bright mind, yeah. and uh, then you're taken to refuge. Yeah, it's not, it, you know, the statement is not pointing to the object, it's a method for awakening. Yeah. Right? See the difference? It's like this, oh yeah, it's hot, it's cold, no, no, no. Stop thinking, it's like this. And that's what it's doing, yeah. Do you think this is real? <laughs> well, it's... it's right now, What, yeah, how do I think it is real? Well, when I go into thinking, yeah, yeah. I know the thinking's not real. Yeah. It, it, but if I just in suchness, then it's, it's like this. But I know all my perceptions of who I am and all of that. It's all constructed. It's all just constructed. And those constructs are helpful to, to some extent, and they're hindrance to some extent. But I am cu- more curious about that silent, pre-thinking state of being. That's potentially and transcendent? That is transcendence, I would say, yeah. And, and the deeper it is trusted, the more profound the silence is noticed, and, the, and, and, and you do see that responses can come from that which are very appropriate. And the need to plan and do all of that is less and less. So you, you kind of see, you see the profundity of refuge in, in, in Buddhist sense. That Buddha is awareness, Dharma is truth the way things are, Sangha is the community. But you see, that's the perfect statement of religious life. And a lot of people take some long time to understand refuge. They think, they think it's doctrinal. Yeah, I believe in the Buddha, and I believe in the Dharma, and I like these guys. Or we are sung or whatever, but it's it's not uh, it's not dualistic in that way. It's it's again it's existential. Awake is is it's like, and truth is <laughs> is like this, and that within a moral framework. And that that you know the ideas of grace and, and mercy, I think, are more around like refuge. That's that's the language we use. Last thing, are you familiar with the University of Virginia's Department of Perceptual Studies? No, no, no. Yeah, they're on the kind of cutting edge of studying children with reincarnation mm-hmm. stories, right? Right. In addition to near-death experiences, and the science is now saying that the mind is not in the brain. Not okay. In the brain matter, that people are brain dead for long periods of time, no EEG activity. Um, and they're able to tell you things that are going on all around them, tell you things that have happened, and if they're revived. Wow. Yeah, wow. so 
Yeah, the UVA has been doing that in Arlington for 50 years. So there's some new, new stuff coming out. It's really fascinating. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's one of the, like I get sometimes people who have cancer that come to me and, and, and they basically ask, how do I die when they're terminal? I've had three women in the past year and a half, two years. And the first question I ask them, well, do you think that consciousness is gray matter and that when the body dies, consciousness dies and ceases? They said, no, I don't believe that. Okay. Then I don't have to talk about rebirth or Buddhism or Christianity. I can just say, okay, okay if that's true um, and consciousness isn't gray matter, how might you get closer to that intuition you have? And then they recommend awareness of change. Okay, so now you're dying, but if consciousness does not cease with the body, what isn't ceasing and changing right now, it's awareness, isn't it? No. No, so then make that your refuge. And people pick that up pretty easily. Mm -hmm. They can connect to that. And they say, that's how you die. (laughs) Or, how you not die. And it's actually very easy to connect to that. And then I don't, you know, all the emotionality that comes from that, they realize, well, that's not for me to solve. That's for the family to solve. The sense of loss, and, you know, and they have to go through that. But I said, yeah, but awareness knows that, too. So it's a very, very kind of, uh, they find it, these three people find it really refreshing. Whereas most people don't know how to talk about it. You know, because, you know, what, what do I say? So, so often people get very lonely because no one wants to say mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. But you can. You can ask that question, that kind of basic question. It's a very interesting kind of... Most people's intuition is, hmm, no. Now you might say, well, that's because they're attached to ego and, and they want to live forever. That's, someone might say that. But that look, in University of Virginia, it sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is science accepting that? Have, have yeah. There, yeah, it's all peer reviewed. And, yeah. yeah, it's good data. Yeah. Wow. Imagine the Buddha 2,500 years ago. Amazing being. <clears throat> well, my friends.